This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, good news from Boeing on the commercial aircraft market. And FBOs are starting to list their prices. We look back on a couple of fly-ins over the past week. And we take a look at cockpit artificial intelligence. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, really interesting guy, really cool to talk to him. It's Charles McGee, a Tuskegee Airman. That's right. And Mark Baker sat down with Charles McGee and got a lot of good information about his experience in World War II being one of those groundbreaking pilots back in the day. And we honor all those folks this year because it's the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which was just completed about a few weeks ago. Yeah, fascinating guy. It's a good talk, so definitely stick around for that. But first, let's talk about the commercial aircraft market a little bit. I know it's not usually the kind of stuff we talk about, but of course, it does matter in terms of what the future is going to bring for the pilot market. So Boeing just released their their outlook. They do the pilot outlook around Oshkosh, and right now we've got the aircraft market, and it, it had some uh, interesting things, I'd say. It really did, Ian, and I think that this is an interesting bellwether for the entire aviation industry. And as you know, general aviation pilots like yourself and myself and many others were sort of like the AAA, you know, pilot equivalent of the AAA for baseball players. So I figured that this all kind of trickles down to us. So I saw that there are five things that I identified in their commercial aviation market that look like it's helping to drive a lot of this growth. Year over year, there's an increased demand for air travel, Ian. 6.7% has averaged over the past five years, and that's pretty good. It's pretty good steady growth. And the one thing that is driving a lot of that is that the, this low-cost airfares and higher living standards around the world with a growing middle class. And so that's sort of driving emerging markets such as Asia and the Middle East where more people are traveling. 
So that's uh, number one and number two. And number three, it looks like emerging mar- other emerging markets around the world are helping to spur economic growth worldwide. And this is an interesting figure. It accounted for more than 60% of the world's economic growth between 2008 and 2018, these emerging markets. That's kind of a lot wow. to, in the last 10 years. And then uh, number four, it looks like consumer spending has been bolstering air travel demand. Looking at number five, travel and tourism. Is it growing part of consumer spending. Yeah, so I think something that puts a really interesting point on it, I mean, obviously most of the report is for the future, but even looking back in the last 10 years, the uh, they have some just a little bit of historical data. So in 2009, the fleet was 16,400 aircraft, and in 2018 it was 23,100. So I think, you know, looking forward from a pilot standpoint, it's like not only do you have, and people forget this, it's like not only do you have all of the baby boomers who are retiring who need to be replaced, but you've got an increase in aircraft, and obviously as the population grows, like you talked about, it's like there are going to be more aircraft and it's going to be more pilots, unless there's this maybe optionally piloted future or single pilot aircraft. But interestingly, the uh, outlook doesn't really get into that. No, it doesn't. And that is something that we are looking at on the horizon. You know, you and I have spoken about uh, EVTOL aircraft, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And also we've talked a little bit about just electric aircraft, not not only uh Basically, recently we spoke about the um, the Skymaster, the uh, 337, that has an electric engine on the back and a typical avgas engine on the front. But as that technology emerges and gets better and better, I wonder if there still will be a demand for a lot of pilots, or, or if there's. I think the public will have a, a, a reluctance to fly in an unmanned situation. That's just my own personal viewpoint. What about you? Yeah, I think fully unmanned. I I totally agree with you. But you know, a future with one pilot, it's like I could I could definitely see that. In fact, I I think that's an area where people and technology are going to be ahead of the regulators. Whereas you know, when we're talking about eVTOL, I think probably uh, probably the technology and and the regulators are maybe kind of in sync there. But it's like the people are, I, and as far as I'm concerned, sort of behind in terms of acceptance. But no, single pilot uh, airliners, I, I could see people getting on board with that, so to speak. Well, it looks like Boeing <laughs> is behind that <laughs> behind that 100%. They're calling for a new airplane demand that's going to top 44,000 deliveries through 2038. So that's the next 20 years. And so that's an average annual rate of 3.4% growth in the number of jet airplanes. So that's just simply a lot of jets. And look, that's not that doesn't mean that uh, that they're only flying one route a day. I know jets fly what Ian, you know, three, four, five more routes a day. So mm-hmm. you're looking at a, a lot of utility and a lot of aircraft if you multiply that out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So really cool stuff, and we'll we'll touch on this again when they release their uh, pilot outlook. But of course, that those things will relate. So keep an ear out for that in a couple of months. But moving on, wanted to talk about now. This is something we haven't touched in a few months, but it's we've been working in the background. This is the idea of FBO pricing. Now you know that AOPA has hit this hard over the last couple of years from a number of angles. One being sort of egregious pricing from a few bad actor FBOs. But then also just system-wide transparency. There's, there's, you know, we believe, and I think a lot of the members believe that there is just a complete lack of transparency in FBO fees, and it depends on kind of who you are and what you're flying and when you show up, and very little is published. And and uh, we we're working to change that. We are, and I think that we're making great strides in that. AOPA recently rolled out an FBO pricing tool for some of these other fees, and the other fees we're talking about are things like uh, landing fees 
or if it's a really cold and in the wintertime, I'm talking about de-icing fees, maybe for larger aircraft, things like that. But some of the, the gotcha fees that you might not know about, Ian, it's really easy to use this. And uh, I don't know how often you get a chance to do it, but I recently went on a couple of flights and I go to our homepage, the AOPA.org homepage, and down where it says airports, I go ahead and, and I just search for the airport. I went ahead and plugged in Lakeland Linder in an international airport there. So I clicked on that. And uh, when, the, when Lakeland Linder International Airport comes up, it's pretty simple. I go ahead and, and click down to one of the FBOs and Shelter. Uh, they've helped us out during uh, hurricanes and things like that. I click on their link. And then, uh, lo and behold, all of a sudden, there are prices and fee details in a little gray box about the middle of the page. And I just thought it was great to know that there were zero parking charges. And it says, call call ahead, but generally no no parking fees. So that's good. And if there are fees, like at Teterboro and elsewhere, I think this is where you'll find them. Yeah, I mean, so much of this has to do with expectations. I mean, I remember when I was first learning to fly, we flew into Daytona Beach. And, you know, we were from... Gainesville, actually, which, you know, flight school, it's like we weren't used to paying any fees or anything. And so we show up in Daytona Beach and it's late. And the guy, some guy, one guy comes out because there's one guy there, like an overnight security guard. And he's like, yep, that'll be 40 bucks. And uh, no help, nothing else. It's like 40 bucks to sit on the ramp for a couple hours. And and that was my first taste uh, way back when of of just feeling like, man, it's like I, if I would have known this, I wouldn't have come here because it's not like it's about the 40 bucks necessarily, but I just felt like I didn't get anything for my money. So, you know, in terms of comparison shopping, yeah, definitely you can use the tool for that. But I think a lot of it is just about setting the expectation. And I mean, you mentioned one airport. We also looked up Charlottesville, uh, which has gotten some complaints about in the past. AOPA has. And looking up the fees there, it's like, you got to know in advance that Signature is going to charge you, if you got a single-engine piston, a $29 handling fee. Now, chances are that could be waived with fuel, but maybe not. So you, you want to be prepared that you're going to pay almost 30 bucks just to, to land and maybe drop somebody off there. Absolutely. And I would say that this is a really good starting point, Ian. And what I, I, what I typically do is I'll, I'll pick up the phone and call the folks, and I'll ask uh, those kind of questions. So I, I kind of don't like surprises, you know. But you're right, though. Um, a lot of the FBOs will waive a lot of the fees if you're going to buy fuel. And But also the uh, FBO pricing structure interface here on our flight planner in our airport's directory page will basically let you know how many gallons of fuel you might need to buy, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. there are 36 different fee types that are included in the new tool. And, you know, 47,000 folks each month visit this as they're planning their flight. So that's a really key to know, and it's it's really going to be a great tool to help us out and to know if we have um, enough money in our pockets, our wallets, or on our credit cards. Yeah, <laughs> that's right when you show up. That's a great point. Hey, so two fly-ins that happened last weekend were, as far as I know, they didn't charge facility fees when you went in. AOPA's uh, fly-in in uh, Livermore, and then the Young uh, Aviators fly-in that you went to down in Triple Tree. That's right, Ian. And no, I did not go to the Livermore flying this year in Livermore, California, although I heard it was great. They had wonderful weather and 9,790 people showed up. That's a pretty big turnout, Ian. That's awesome. Yeah, I like to think that part of that was because of Barry Schiff, the AOPA pilot columnist who spoke. And in fact, I think Mike Collins, who wrote the story, said about half of the people who attended did go to one seminar or another, which is pretty amazing. Also, a big draw appears to be these stole invitationals. These are sort of informal stole demonstrations, and uh, they've been a big hit. That's right. We saw the uh, stall invitational here at the AOPA fly-in over at headquarters back in May, 
And it is just the coolest thing to watch. I mean, there's a lot of excitement there. It's an arena situation, and folks are just you know chatting each other up as we watch these pilots just land their aircraft and take them off in such short distances. The skill involved is amazing, and it really would teach you how to be a much better pilot if you're really into the uh, STOL, short takeoff and landing technique. I mean, I definitely want to learn more about that myself. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's pretty neat stuff, pretty amazing stuff. So they had a great time at Livermore. But on the opposite side, on the opposite coast, this young aviator's flying. It's it's starting to gain a little bit of traction. It's just such a, a cool event. So tell us a little bit about Triple Tree and, and what was going on at Young Aviators. Ian, it was a really interesting event. It was a lot of fun. There were a lot of young aviators there, probably about 500 over the two days. And basically, they um, it's just an informal social gathering with a lot of activities and a lot of stuff for people to do. Now, Triple Tree Aerodrome is in the Appalachian foothills, and the patriarch is Pat Hartness. And he started out, I think, with RC, radio control aircraft, and really built a following. A lot of people go there yearly for the Joe Nall fly-in, which is a radio control fly-in that just attracts thousands of folks. But this young aviator fly-in is uh, put together by co-founders Ryan Hunt and Kayla McLeod. It's so successful, actually, that that Ryan has already has a full-time job. So uh, Kayla was running herd over this most of the time, and she did a great job. And she has a council of young aviators, in that are going to keep this fly-in going into perpetuity. And uh, it's just so, it's so heartening to see so many people have fun. Now, have you ever been to Triple Tree? I have not. I mean, I've read tons about it and, and know about it, but no, I haven't been there. It's supposed to be just an incredible, I mean, just a, uh, the strip itself is supposed to be amazing. It is. It's beautiful. It's a 7,000 foot long bent grass turf landing strip. And I, of course, I had four cameras rolling on the Cessna 182 Skyline I was flying with our social media guru, Kevin Cortez. So I can vouch that my landing was not terrible. Now, <laughs> a lot of room for improvement, but landing at a grass strip like that, it really just makes everyone feel like they're a professional. It's just so easy on the landing gear and everything. It's just so nice. And that is a beautiful facility. It's got awesome restroom and shower facilities. All the food was taken care of except for one meal during this weekend. And that's because young aviators that are going to college, and even though they might have a friend that let them borrow an aircraft or they scraped together a couple of bucks and they rented one for the weekend, but they're still college students and they're, they're pinching pennies just like you and I did with uh, our pizza parties back in the day. So it's a similar kind of an attitude and a feel. Kayla and her group added a, a nice band that was playing over the weekend on Saturday night. AOPA helped sponsor the dinner for Saturday night where there were about 150 people there. And, you know, we're real big into the next generation of aviators. So it's very heartening. It's very good to see groups of young people attending these things. And it was just neat. There were um, spontaneous sunset flights in an air cam and in an RV-12. And, I mean, you just hadn't lived unless you've been in an open cockpit air cam going about 50 miles an hour, you know, cruising around the, the southern Appalachians as the sun sets. It just, and there were just all kinds of fun young people to meet and, uh, and a lot of interesting ev events to go to and some learning opportunities as well. Recruiters were there for colleges and some major aircraft and aviation businesses. So there was a lot of stuff that young people could look to the future and try to, you know, mine some of their contacts for jobs, in fact, when they get out of school. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's really neat to see 
you know, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like us old guys, you know, saying, oh, we need to start something for young people. And it's like, hey, come on out. And, you know, for it to be just kind of inauthentic, it's like, this is them getting together, starting an event that they want and trying to invite their friends out. And I just, I, that's so cool. I love that. Well, in fact, just uh, before we leave the subject, just to let you know, there were several folks that we met last year uh, when I flew down there that were also there this year. So you've got a repeat crowd and they're the, and, and here's how they found out about it through social media. So there's a lot of Instagramming going on, a lot of Facebooking. And so that's how a lot of folks met each other. And they sort of had these Instagram meetups. Hey, meet me at Triple Tree for the young aviators. And other folks said, okay, we'll meet you there. And, um, and then there was a spectacular, before we leave the subject, let me tell you, watching the nighttime RC aerobatic demonstration was very, very cool. And we got to, uh, to make some s'mores, you know, around campfires. And there's a gazebo where in the daytime you can kind of judge other people's landings. It's just, it's fun, man. It's laid back, camped out in the trees. It's, I recommend it highly to anyone. That's fantastic. Very cool. Very cool. So, hey, speaking of the future, AI, you know, artificial intelligence, I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of skirting around the edge of it as we get more and more advanced avionics and, and things start to be more adaptive and more learning. You know, Four Flight's got some... Uh, stuff that they work with, with MITRE, for example, that, you know, it sees where you are in the airport and it'll alert you to a, a runway incursion and, you know, things like that. And But there's a, something that came out last week that I think is going to help kind of push that forward a little bit. And that is that Apario, which makes the Stratus, they're the actual hardware maker of Stratus, they have purchased AeroV, which is an EFB. And what that essentially means, because Stratus has this, uh, and Apario has this text-to-speech capability, is that in the future, potentially, you're going to be able to get some of these ATC messages transposed for you and get it all in an integrated EFB type of environment. Pretty cool stuff. Well, I think that if it's if the audible advisories are transcribed and they're visual, then there might be less of a chance of missing them because sometimes there's a lot of frequency congestion and it's a little bit hard to hear what's going on. But you and I were talking about this a little bit before the podcast, and I was thinking of the day in the not-too-distant future where that stuff might be displayed on a head-up display where I'm looking straight ahead and I'm not missing anything. Yep, yep, that's right. So, I mean, you know, first step is ATC comes in, goes through, you know, the cords into this AeroV application with Stratus, but it's like ultimately Stratus because it might be able to play with a panel mount box, is able to send that to the panel, which then sends it to the the HUD like you're talking about, and it's all right there for you. And, and so, yeah, the, the future in terms of that sort of interactivity is really exciting, I think. So it's sort of like, you know, the, this uh, the speech to text is kind of along the same lines as as what we're hearing now with, with Siri mm-hmm. and some of the other uh, big apps. You're basically able to, to say something, and then there's an action that results from that. Yeah, yeah. And so I think ultimately that's where we're going in the cockpit. And so Apario, just one of the many folks who are working on that. But that's that's a really cool acquisition, and, and I think we'll see more out of them. Alexa, land my plane. 10 degrees, yeah. flaps, no, make that 20. Go to 30 now. <laughs> At a certain point, it's not fun anymore, but yeah. <laughs> you can imagine that. That's that's so cool. Uh, actually, speaking of that, it's funny. You know, in an emergency, you could totally see something like that. It's like, you know, if the pilot's incapacitated or, you know, it's like, it's like hey, Alexa, take me to the runway, you know? Yeah, totally. I could completely see that. Very cool. Very cool stuff. Uh, I will keep an eye on it. Actually, speaking of acquisitions, that's the last thing I want to talk about this week, and that is that turboprop manufacturer, Dahar, they make the TBM. Uh, they're the parent company of TBM. They have purchased Quest, which makes the Kodiak. 
the Kodiak, it, it, I've never been in one, Ian, but it looks like an awesome backcountry machine. I know it's a 10-seat utilitarian aircraft that is uh, very well known in the backcountry. And this is kind of an interesting move for them because, like you said, they're known for their bigger aircraft, their bigger turboprop aircraft, and they have quite a name for themselves. But this is interesting because this is a, a high-wing aircraft, a uh, single-engine high-wing versus the rest of their line is low-wing. Yeah, it's true. And the TBM, you know, it's, it's, it is kind of an interesting pairing, and I think we'll have to see where it goes. But the TBM, their customer base, they've got a lot of repeat customers, so people who have bought them from the beginning who just step up through the models. And you got a lot of owner-operators who are buying these. It's maybe a husband and wife or, you know, really small company or something like that. And they're flying like two people, three people, you know, two and a dog, something like that. So a lot of personal airplanes, actually. It's kind of like the ultimate speed machine. Quest, on the other hand, you know, they're backcountry. The the company was started as a bunch of missionary groups got together for the funding because they wanted a backcountry airplane that they, they could fly all over the world for mission groups. So it's slow. I mean, relatively, it flies low. It's non-pressurized. Gets in and out of rough strips. And so, really, the airplanes are completely different. And and I think that's going to be. We'll have to see what happens here. Obviously, sales will be integrated first, the sales apparatus. But you know, you're trying to sell one airplane to an existing customer base, maybe some new customers where it's all about going fast and this personal airplane. But then this other one where it's like get in and out of anywhere, kind of anywhere in the world. So it's really. I'd be surprised if there's any sort of overlap there in the customer. So that, I think that'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Well, as you mentioned just now with uh, the, the TBM line, they just came out with the TBM 940, which is a very capable machine with a 1,400-pound payload. And we saw some of the uh, TBM 910s even back a couple of years ago when AOPA helped assist during some hurricane evacuations and folks were loading up these uh, these TBM aircraft with just, I mean, pallets of water in and and supplies to help folks out in uh, Florida. That they really were appreciative of our efforts, of course. But it showed how capable the aircraft were. They could just be loaded to the hilt with liquids and heavy stuff. And uh, just, I think it's going to be an interesting pairing here, interesting marriage between these two opposites. Yeah, it really is. It's it's funny that the Quest has had a really kind of an interesting history. You know, the the last owner I think was Japanese, and apparently the story goes what happened is he wanted to buy a couple of airplanes, and it, kind of a small fleet order because I think he had some unique needs in Japan, and he kind of looked at the balance and and looked at everything else and said, ah, oh, I'll just buy the company. So I'm not wow. sure. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, they had made some really nice investments over the past couple of years. I'm not sure how much of a personal passion it was necessarily. Uh, whereas Dahar is a, you know, they're an aerospace manufacturer. They make obviously the TBM and they make subcomponents for Airbus and some other things. So it really will be kind of an interesting transition, I think. Absolutely. Well, we'll keep an eye on that too, and we'll see how that goes. And you now TBM has been. Um and Dyer actually has been a pretty good player as uh, for the past few years. But we looked up the the Quest line, and you know they are going pretty doggone steady since about you know 2015. They've been selling about 32, 36 airplanes a year, uh, 23 in 2018, but 31 in 2017, and so on and so forth. So pretty, they're a pretty stable player. Like you said, it's a a very mission specific aircraft. But I think that's an interesting marriage. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So, hey, uh, Dave, I want to bring on our guest, Charles McGee, um, fascinating guy, Tuskegee Airman. And, and like I said, he sat down with uh, AOPA President Mark Baker.
Well, good morning, Colonel. How are you? Good morning to you. Well, thank you for having us your beautiful home here in D.C. and sharing a little bit of time with us at uh, AOPA. We'd like to talk to you about your story. Well, hopefully we can give you some answers that fit. <laughs> <laughs> so you have got a storied history and uh, it's all about aviation. And, you know, if you'd like to start at the beginning a little bit and share with us what got you down that path. And I know it's an interesting story and we'd like to have it. Well, that's always interesting. Uh, to, and I'm often asked, well, how'd you get into aviation? And my answer literally is I was avoiding the draft. <laughs> Um, I was in college, learned to handle a rifle in ROTC, Pershing rifles, all those things. And, but because I was in school, my draft board wasn't calling my number, which was good because they did often as a need. But uh, And it turns out that I learned about the flying opportunity, and I think my ROTC instructor urged me to uh, go the pilot side. Part of the Army's program at that time was that they couldn't use a black pilot because they didn't have any black mechanics. So of the now called Tuskegee Airmen, the first were the mechanics mm. that were put into training at Chinoot Field, ran to Illinois. That's 14 miles away from the university. Yeah. And of course we learned there's something going on up there. The Army expected them to fail and they didn't. The Army Air Corps at that time. Army Air Corps. Right thought they, you know, we, it just didn't go to work, but we'll, we'll experiment. In fact, that first authorization for the 99th Fighter Squadron was an experiment by the Army because they expected it to fail. But the first were the mechanics. They didn't fail. And uh, the Army said, my gosh, then we need an airfield for the pilot training. They found $4 million to build Tuskegee Army Airfield. Airfields all around the country. Right. But they built that airfield mechanics before the field was finished were housed over at Maxwell Field. Maxwell needed mechanics but wouldn't use them because they're black. So they just boarded there until the airfield was finished and then moved over. And a couple of months after their move, the pilot training began. And the, Spring of 41. And you were there for the spring of 41? Not quite. Uh, as I say, I heard about the mechanics training and uh, took the exams, the past exams for pilot training, but this was in the spring of 42. Waited and waited and waited, but finally got called direct to uh, cadet training in October of 42. So I left school, I'd finished two years of college, that, that may be what they were waiting for, <laughs> whatever, and, and uh, went directly to Tuskegee. First time going south, and it had its interesting points, but fortunately in our class we had folks from all over the country, and so some from the south, and those that were familiar with the local areas let us know where you don't go to buy gas or do things. you. So it kept us out of trouble. <laughs> and of course the focus was uh, it was training. But as I look back, uh, I think another factor helped me focus on flying, and that is I had met a girl on campus that, uh, walking from class one day past a young lady, and I turned around and looked back, and she had turned around. <laughs> <laughs> kind of special moment. 
And, and uh, I said, I don't need to follow up on this. I did. And uh, it turns out that uh, because of that delay from the spring of 42 to October, we had been going together and, and uh, finally said, let's get married. We got married on a Saturday and Monday morning's mail said report. <laughs> <laughs> short honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> Very short. But uh, other hand, and she went south with me. In fact, she became secretary for Tuskegee Institute's uh, medical program. But her being there helped me because my focus when we had a little time off, if you didn't have to walk some tours on Saturday or Sunday, I had my friend. I didn't yeah. have to go to Atlanta or Montgomery <laughs> looking for a pleasant Angel. weekend with a yeah. young lady. So my focus was strictly on making the most of the training. And I think, again, I didn't plan that, but as I look back, it certainly had its effect on my focus. And so, um, I think because of my ROTC work, I passed through upper pre-flight. Of course, you, know, you had pre-flight, primary, basic, advanced, and checkout. But because of that, I moved up a class and I ended up graduating in June of 43, class 43F. We checked out in the P-40. By that time, Tuskegee Army Airfield was overcrowded, uh, and our training took place in Michigan. and. Uh, the Oscoda Army Air Base was good for our gunnery because we could go out over the lake and fire and not, wasn't that much traffic up there that made that impossible. But that was a period. But the 99th uh, finished their training and were combat ready in December of 42. And now the Army had a problem because they didn't know what to do because no white commander wanted them. They finally, they had three, four more months training and were finally sent to North Africa, attached to the 33rd Fighter Group, but not to their base. They sent a pilot over there to get their briefing who came back to their base, because segregation went overseas as well. And they're flying the P-40. Uh, and of course, I say, Momire didn't want him. His comments, attitude, uh, ought to be patrolling Liberia. Well, where were the Germans? Where's Liberia? think you can understand that, <laughs> that statement very easy. But that brought a hearing in Washington, and, and of course, in the meantime, training's continuing at Tuskegee, but out of that hearing, a study showed that their bombs on target was equal to what the other, and of course, they'd only been in combat a, fort, a short time, continued. So training continued at, at Tuskegee, and they stayed in the combat moving out of North Africa into Sicily, out of Sicily into Italy. Well, the training that continued at Tuskegee brought about three additional single-engine fighter squadrons, the 100, 301st, and 302nd. I was assigned to the 302nd squadron, and uh, we were combat ready December of 43, in January, moved directly to Italy at the same time the 99th was moving out of Sicily into Italy. And I've always said, looking at history, there was a bit of integration that took place because the 99th was attached to the 79th fighter group, Bill Bates. He was just glad to have more aircraft to do the job. In fact, the 99th flying with 
with the, that unit over the Anzio Beach. They had shot down 17 German aircraft over a few days' time frame. So it was a matter of opportunity. And uh, they're still flying the P-40. As I say, we were combat ready in the P-40, but they, just before we left, they said, well, you, you are going to do some patrol work. We switched P-39 Bell Air Cobra. And we were patrolling Naples Harbor from the waterways to the Anzio Beachhead. At, at the time, the 99th was flying with the 79th. But in the spring of uh, 44, four tactical fighter squadrons were picked to begin the escort work, moving from 12th Tactical Air Force to 15th Strategic Air Force over to the Adriatic side of Italy. And this came about because they said our task was to help save American lives. They thought we had enough guns on our bombers to protect them from German Air Force. Wasn't happening. Sometime half of a squadron wasn't turned. They put up 12 aircraft, but if six didn't return, that's 60 American lives in danger. Many of them were protected by the partisans and later evacuated back to safety, but many lost their lives. And that's why they started the escort work. So these four, the 332nd Fighter Group was one of the four moving to our strip. It was a farmer's field called Rimatelli, Italy. Pure steel planking runway, 10 cities on each side of the runway <laughs> was living circumstance. And uh, P-39 wasn't the aircraft. That wasn't an interceptor at all. In fact, I always said that you had a bogey at 17,000 feet and time you got there with the 39, he was back in, <laughs> in Germany. <laughs> so uh, we gave the P-47 to the Russians and, and I mean the P-39 to the Russians. They used them for interdiction ground support, which was, wasn't too bad. We picked up P-47 and begin the escort work with the... That's P a big airplane. P-47, very roomy cockpit, not too bad, but very limited range, limited in altitude capability. So we only had it about three months, and all the 332nd being the last, but all four of the uh, groups ended up with the P-51 Mustang. We had Bs and C models uh, of the... Uh, of the Mustang and Mustang and flew them onto the I think they got demodeled the bubble canopy very late in the war, but I had come home. I was over from January to November forty four. The return home or come out of the combat after fifty missions didn't apply to us. I had hundred and thirty six. Hundred and thirty six before missions. replacement came. <laughs> Eighty two of them were tactical in the uh, P thirty nine and 54 were strategic missions. As we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, we're coming up on the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. Uh, you guys were busy on the south side of the theater at that time, huh? We certainly were. Uh, hear, hearing about it, of course, things were classified, so there wasn't that much news. We just knew we had missions uh, against the German forces that were in southern France to keep them from backing up the invasion. Uh, in fact, one of our pilots that's written a book who became a prisoner of war, his aircraft was damaged as we were fighting against the radar stations and so on that were along the French 
southern French border. We lost a couple of pilots because to go fly up there, they decided rather than go at altitude and descend to the target, somebody thought we ought to stay low and fly just above the water to go in so they couldn't detect us coming in. We lost a couple of pilots because of that, but I was fortunate on my mission to hit my targets and get out <laughs> and get back. I'd say we had a couple who planes were damaged, became prisoners of war. In fact, Alexander Jefferson, who lives in Detroit now, has written a book, and he was an artist and drew a lot of pictures from his uh, interment and experience and so on. But that was our part of that, but we flew missions, uh, and I would say northwest to southern France, north into Germany, Czechoslovakia, Romania, the, and uh, the oil fields all the way going east to the oil fields in Romania. So we had quite a few. The longest mission that the group ever flew was I had come home, but near the end of the war, they had a flight uh, in the, to Berlin. Fortunately, the group was one of two groups shooting down the German jets that were the ME-262 that were put, put in. I guess they thought they could outrun the 51, but didn't didn't happen in every case. <laughs> <laughs> but I think also when we look back, probably the majority of experienced German pilots were no longer in, in there, no longer available. So that may have been part of that, part of that too. But the the group because of that mission was recognized uh, and as I say we became the Red Tails and that's a story a lot of people don't aren't aware of uh, of the Red Tail. Well of the four groups somebody in 15th Air Force, one of the gunners on the bombers know that these airplanes we're bringing up there are not German, they're right. there to help you. <laughs> one had yellow tail, one had candy stripe, red and white stripes, one had orange and black checkerboard, 332nd had the red tail. Of course, uh, somebody in the story said they may have painted the rudder at first and somebody may have told them paint the whole tail. I'm, I think that's just a war story. <laughs> I think painting the whole tail was the original uh, uh, part of it. But that's why uh, the red tails uh, became popular. But of course, as we talk of the red tails today, that's half of the unit. Because when I graduated in June of 43, my instructor said, well, it's too bad they don't have a bomber program for you guys because I think you'd make a good bomber pilot. I didn't ask him what he meant by that because <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure what I was doing other than enjoying flying. Uh, but he didn't know they had already approved and three months later began medium bomber training at Tuskegee Army Airfield, 477th Bomb Group, Mitchell B-25. and. Uh, I'm an old fighter pilot, but when I came home in November, got back down to Tuskegee in January of 45, I became a twin-engine instructor. And we had AT-10s at first, not so good, but they switched to TB-25, stripped-down B-25s. That was wonderful. Tricycle gear, lots of power, excellent for instructors. I've, I've flown a B-25 a fair amount, and I, I think it's just one of the coolest airplanes Oh, my goodness, the up and be. In fact, I was recently, uh, somebody in the Commemorative Air Force in Louisiana or one of the states has a 25 wants me to come down for a ride. <laughs> I may get there sometime, but I'm not rushing. <laughs> not, 
It, climbing in and out isn't easy anymore. No, no it's just a little <laughs> bit of a climb up to the hole. But it's a pretty cool airplane. And mm -hmm. So then, do you remember the day that you got noticed of Victory in Europe Day and what, how you felt and where you were at when it was kind of 1945? Other than having our missions and knowing that we were supporting, of course, we didn't, because things were classified, we, we didn't get a lot of advanced information on what was taking place. We just got mission assignments and you knew where it was fit and occasionally the newspaper later would let you know what you accomplished, but uh, communication wasn't a big thing in those days. And of course, it's misleading when folks see uh, movies today because they take a lot of licensed <laughs> pilots are talking to each other and yeah. talking about what's taking place. That didn't happen. <laughs> Radio silence was normal. Very, very immoral. In fact, and enforced. <laughs> you didn't want to be one to have to report to the commander for speaking out. So when you hear these things or see that, that uh, it, it's it's very misleading. Well, your service continued. You stayed on with the service for a long time, and well, that uh, particular time and event was just the beginning of your long career with the uh, yes, military aviation. Yes. Uh, even at home, as I say, uh, one of the things that uh, before integration, uh, after the Air Force had determined to take that stand, they one day said, well, you got to do something else besides fly. And there were choices. Uh, some went to intelligence school, weather school. I went to the aircraft maintenance school. And many of my assignments after that were related to maintenance and material support. I'd be in the field. Uh, in fact, uh, I didn't get into the 102. I had a couple rides to get checked out. I was in Minot, North Dakota, but got called down to Richard Gabar Air Base in material uh, in the office. And that seemed, seemed to happen often, but uh, I was there uh, and got called into the reconnaissance business that, uh, well, I, my tour in, in Korea came about, uh, I had gone to the Philippines and two weeks after I arrived is when the war broke out. And they grabbed 51 pilots wherever you were because we didn't have our jets in place at the time to support that action. They pulled to the 18th fighter group in the Philippines had just turned over their 51s to the Philippine Air Force and were flying F-80s. But they pulled two squadrons because they were just a few months out of being qualified and active in the 51. And of course, having just gotten over there in my background, 51, I was immediately in one of the squadrons, two squadrons, when they went up to Japan where there were 51s stored. In fact, we flew missions out of Japan while they built the first strip inside the Pusan perimeter. Did you really? Yeah and then hopped over there. In fact, I was sent over, I was maintenance officer of the squadron because of my career at that time, and uh, sent over to do, and the Corps of Engineers weren't pretty happy because they had another thousand feet of the runway still <laughs> to do. I stayed overnight, went back home, and then we, of course, moved over a few weeks later when, when, when they finished that, that was K-9. There later, the unit moved to K-10, a little farther west, uh, for a permanent base, if you will. But flying the uh, 51, never saw a MiG because they weren't down in trees where we, where we were. 
uh, flying the support. And we actually flew out of Japan while they finished K-9 and moved over and then flew. But they actually flew missions out of uh, Poyang Airport. Did you really? Yeah. We had moved, pushed, and had we not allowed the Chinese to come into the war, we would have, we probably wouldn't have had a split Korea that we still have today. But in my analysis of that, I tell people World War II, we declared war and provided what it took to win the war. Korea, politics. Said no, politics is a compromise, there's no win. And we still got a divided Korea. Vietnam, same thing. Because you were in Vietnam as well. And later in Vietnam, uh, flying the um, reconnaissance version of the F-4. They had two new squadrons formed. Uh, went to, I took the two of us were lieutenant colonels. Uh, we went to school in Virginia, mountain home, check out an airplane, survival schools. And I took the 12th squadron to uh, South Vietnam. I took the 16th there, he took the 12th to, to Thailand. But that was my Vietnam experience <laughs> and, and so on. But uh, When you got back from Vietnam then, what did you do? After Vietnam, I was sent to air liaison with Eastern 7th Army for a period, but got promoted out of the job. I was a lieutenant colonel in Vietnam, got promoted to 06, and uh, ended up being moved to the 50th Attack Fighter Wing at Han. There it got F-4Cs, Ds, and Es. I'm still flying. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so as, as the chief of maintenance for the, for the the group, uh, I was doing all the test flying. It worked out well for us, so which I don't think some of the people at 17th Air Force realized, but uh, the group uh, maintenance officer was not non-rated. But I'm flying. I was able to go. Our Sagunary was in Spain. Well, I could fly down and take care of our materiel business and see the things going fly back home, which made a... a a big difference in my mind uh, in the work. But uh, as I say, I'm attached to the tactical fighter squadron. We, well, of the three, one had, we had the air defense version of the F-4, we had the wild weasel version, we had the tactical fighter version of the F-4. And I'm attached to the tactical fighter squadron with a colonel attached to a fighter squadron in England, flew to Zweibrücken, Germany and landed with his gear up. <laughs> that grounded everybody attached <laughs> to squadrons throughout Europe. And uh, when they reviewed me, they said, well, why are you still flying? I said, nobody's ever told me <laughs> told to quit. So I was lucky enough up to that point to actually fly 27 of my 30 years. 27 of your 30 years you did flying? Did actively oh, flying. That's and a record. <laughs> it is. And I was loving every minute of it. I flew um, in my career probably as first pilot or pilot in command, whichever way you want to look at it, in some 27 different aircraft. Because C-47, I may myself, they need supplies picked up or take somebody to school, I'm available. <laughs> I do test stop after maintenance 15 minutes or 20 before going back online. I'm a, I like maintenance guys that fly. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, I have no way of being able to tell you why and how that happened. 
Well, the only thing I asked for when they had a preference statement, I'd like to go to the West Coast. Never happened. Never happened. <laughs> Somebody said I should have put down the East Coast. <laughs> we went to the West Coast. <laughs> but, but I had ended up with three tours at uh, Grandview Air Base, then it became Richard Cabal. Three different tours. My final assignment was to the Air Force Communications Service, and they had just been moved from Scottfield, Illinois, to Richard Cabal. So I'm back for my third time, so <laughs> I can call Kansas City home because yeah. I retired there. And and again, uh, uh, in my career, and again, as I say, I don't have an answer of why or how I got the job, but I commanded the 44th Fighter Bomber Squadron for two years after Korea. They're flying the F, first F jet experience, wonderful, had a great Great time there in the Philippines. So, you know, one of the things that I'd like to ask you, you know, we'll be using your image for a long time to come. As you know, we talked about AOPA providing this high school curriculum now in 35 states and hundreds of high schools. Yes. We've got a long way to go, but we want to inspire young people in aviation. And what would you say is, you know, what you tell young people when you, I know you go around and talk to schools all the time today. <laughs> what do you think about aviation and why they should think about it? Well, I tell them, after my first ride, I knew I'd made the right decision. I enjoyed being into the air, to be able to loop, roll, and spin, and come back and put your feet on the ground. <laughs> Nothing better. Exactly. <laughs> Nothing better. And so I tell them, uh, believe that you can, but prepare yourself, get the education, and go for it, because there's lots of opportunities there. And if you can find it enjoyable, you're on the right track. We think that it's a, it's a great career, it's a great education, it's a great way to teach young people about physics and STEM education, all those kind of things. Yes. And hopefully, it makes a big difference for our country for its long term. Well, that's, that's the key, what I tell them, there are opportunities. I said, we still don't have the space plane to go from New York, Tokyo, two, two and a half hours. There's still problems in airframe materials, fuels that won't boil over, burn up going from space back into the Earth's atmosphere. So there's all kinds of opportunities. And then say there's opportunities in the space program. Go for it. And you couldn't even imagine when you were a teenager in the 1930s, being there were just barely a few cars and <laughs> locomotives. <laughs> that, that's why I say I have no answer for how and why I got the opportunities and enjoyed what I was doing in the way that it that it turned out. But fortunately, I can pass on to the youngsters. If you think about it, get the education that will allow you to accomplish what you think and go for it. Our right. country needs it. <laughs> <laughs> go for it is the right answer, right? Just keep going. What we want to do, you know, um, we're kind of a youngster. We're celebrating our 80th anniversary. And what, well, you are celebrating your 100th year. Close uh, to so it. we're kind of a young youngster to you. <laughs> uh, this is a book that celebrates uh, 80 years of AOPA, and I, I see an AOPA magazine next to you over there. I know you, your family, been flyers for a long time. So here's a book that commemorates I 80 years of AOPA. I certainly appreciate my mind. I'll certainly enjoy reading that among the things that I've read, and glad to have that in my library. And and uh, all I can say is, I wish you 80 more. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do. And, you know, thanks for so much for sharing your time and your service, Colonel. I appreciate uh, you're it. You're a proud American. We're proud to know you. 
to share your story broadly in, the, in our country, and I can't thank you enough. Well, that's very kind. Thank you for the opportunity to share, and I uh, wish you 80 more, because what you're doing for the young folks of the country, it's needed. David, these guys, I mean, I just don't think you can overstate uh, what an incredible challenge they face, not only fighting in the war like like all their peers, but obviously the discrimination they faced and everything else. And it's just a, a fascinating story. Absolutely. And it's a, a true story of uh, perseverance. And, you know, we've seen Charles McGee here before at AOPA. He came up here to Frederick in 2016 and just in, enthralled a bunch of people and a bunch of young people as well. And he was he's such a good ambassador for aviation in general and is very supportive of the younger crowd. And, and they were just real tickled to meet him as well. Yeah, that's very cool. Very cool. All right, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk. We're on iTunes. We're also at the Sporties Takeoff app and now on Spotify. And one more place, the AOPA Hangar social media site. All right. We'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>